over the last couple years, my daughter, particularly Avery, my eight-year-old daughter, has been begging, asking, pleading with me to get a dog. And I've said no for years. I'm not a dog person. Any other non-dog people out here? Put your hand up nice and high. Most people are, okay, thank you, non-dog people. Most people are dog people, so it's nice to have a few circles of non-dog people. But I broke down and got a dog. So last, yesterday, we went down and picked up our new family dog named Dodger. He is a mini golden doodle. And my daughter, Avery, my eight-year-old daughter, Avery, wore me down. And I don't love dogs, but I love my family, and my family wants a dog, so I caved. We got a dog. Um, it was a long night. I slept for like an hour, um, and my wife, Brittany, slept even less than I did. She was like, you got to preach. You stay here. And I was like, I'll stay here, but I can hear that dog, so I can't sleep anyway. It doesn't matter where we go. But my point of sharing this is not just to show you cute pictures of my children and my dog. In fact, I wouldn't even, well, the dog is kind of cute, right? I'm not a dog person, but come on, how do you not like that a little bit anyway? But my point, point in sharing this isn't just to show off my family and my dog. It's, it's in the last 24 hours. This dog has been in our possession for 24 hours. We picked him, picked him up at noon yesterday in Iowa, drove him home, got him acclimated to our house, and in the past 24 hours, I've heard my daughter Avery say no and don't more than in her entire eight years of life. <laughs> See, Avery loves Dodger. And, and for most of her eight years of life, it's been my wife Brittany and I telling Avery no, telling her brother Judah no, telling her daughter Oakley, especially her, no. No, don't, no, don't. And now all of a sudden, for the first time in Avery's life, She's learning that if you're in a loving relationship with somebody, especially somebody who's, who's not well, as well adjusted as you and is more immature than you, maybe in a, even a different species, that a loving, relationships, a loving relationship requires some rules. Avery's all morning, Dodger, don't. No, don't chew on this. Don't chew on that. You can't have that. Nope, nope, that's not how it works. Come over here. Don't go to the bathroom there. Don't pee on my parents' carpet. Don't poop in our kitchen. We go outside for that. Don't chew on my hand. Stop chewing my dad's shoe. Don't do this. That's not how we do life. And so she's learning that to be in a loving relationship, there, there's some boundaries. There's some rules. See, that's something that, that we all know, but we often forget. And we think when we think about the Ten Commandments, which we're studying this fall, sometimes we, we, we think about God having rules for us. That's not that's not love. Don't box me in. But the reality is we all know this, that real relationships of love have boundaries. They have some rules. They, they help these rules, these boundaries, they help to hem us in and help us to flourish. See, that's what the Ten Commandments do for God's people. They help to hem us in. They help us to flourish. There's some rules some commands or some laws from God. They're the ways of love. Think of them as the laws of love. It's not God giving his people unnecessary restrictions. The Ten Commandments are God giving his people life-giving instructions. So keep that in mind this fall as we study the Ten Commandments that these are God's ways of love. Some of them, there's many more throughout Scripture, but the Ten Commandments work as like a foundational path for God's people to live out a life of love. 
So this morning, what I want to do is just remind you, last week we kicked off the sermon series by just kind of doing an overview, and we talked about how the Ten Commandments introduce us to who God is, and they instruct us on how life works. Israel is just getting to know God for the first time. We looked last week at Exodus chapter 3 and Moses on the mount and, and God speaking to him in a burning bush saying, my name is Yahweh. I am that I am. I'm unlike all the other gods. I'm personal. I'm present. I'm powerful. I see you. I speak to you and I save you. I lead you and I love you. In fact, I've created a covenant of love with you, my people. And so the Ten Commandments, they introduce for God's people who God is and they give us some instructions with how life works. Like yesterday, my family was introduced to Dodger. And then we brought Dodger, our dog, home and we have to now instruct him. The next months of my life are going to be instructing a dog not to pee on my carpet. But that's what we do, right? We're in a relationship now. And so there's some instruction. We're going to have to learn how to communicate with him. There's going to be this relationship that has to be built. The Ten Commandments work the same. It's God saying, here's the rules in my household. Not, not, not because I want to suck the life out of you, because I want you to actually experience life to the full. And if you do life my way, you will flourish. The Ten Commandments describe for us how people in a covenant relationship with God are supposed to act. And when we act the way that our Creator made us to act, we will flourish. Our communities will flourish. Our families will flourish. Our homes will flourish. And so that's the point of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to ask that you stand now as I read the Ten Commandments this morning from Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments are listed in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the Exodus chapter 20 passage, uh, but also I encourage you to read Deuteronomy 5 and see it listed there as well. So this morning, let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is in your gates. For in the sixth day the Lord made heaven and earth the seas and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male servant or female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. 
and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. God, we thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for speaking to your people through an audible voice, for preserving that through the centuries, through your church, and for speaking for us today, not with tablets of stone, but in, through hearts of flesh that have been made new for you, Lord, are living within us. And so we acknowledge your presence today and pray that you would lead us to walk in your ways of love. For your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we're going to just look at the first two commandments of the ten. You shall, oh, and you may have a seat. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. So there's different, over the years, there have been different traditions. The Catholic and Lutheran traditions have one way of kind of organizing the Ten Commandments, and then the Reformed and Orthodox and Protestant tradition has a little bit of a different way. Some put these two together, others separate, separate out these two, and then do covet into two different commandments. Um, my point is not to follow a certain tradition and history of how we look at the Ten Commandments. I simply put these two together this morning because I think they have some similarities and I think we can, we can kind of put them together as we look at it today and see what God has for us. Not because I'm falling into one tradition or another. I don't really think it matters. Sometimes Christians get caught up in traditions and, and who does what and why did they do it. What we know is that God spoke. He gave these commands to his people whether the first two and are one and the last two are two or the last two are one and the first two are two, it doesn't really matter. God gave these commands to his people for our flourishing and for our good. And so today, we're looking at what it means to have no other gods before him and to not make for ourselves any carved images. What we need to keep in mind as we come now into Exodus chapter 20 and dig into the Ten Commandments is the historical context of God introducing himself to Israel and instructing Israel in how they should go. Last week we looked into this, so I'm not going to go deep dive this morning. If you missed last week, go back and listen to last week's sermon. We kind of do a biblical overview to get up to Exodus chapter 20. But just in a quick way of reminder, God is just introducing himself to his people. They had been in Egypt as slaves. He had made a promise with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He revealed himself to them. He said, I will make you a people. I will bless the nations of the world through you. They had ended up as slaves in Egypt for almost 400 years. And over this time, the Israelite people, the Hebrews, knew very little about God, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. The God of the Israelites, yes, but the God who's choosing to use the Israelites to reveal himself to the world and to become the God of the whole world. Not just the God of a nation, but the God of the nations of the world. But at this point in time, in biblical history, Israel knows very little about God. They're well acquainted with Egyptian gods. See, they had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They had been oppressed and beaten and abused by the Egyptians. And as they were in Egypt, they observed and they noticed the Egyptians and their worship, their pagan worship, their idol worship, their worship of lesser gods. 
And so they, they knew very little about Yahweh. They had heard that they had a great, 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 great granddad and his son and his son who this God had made a promise to. And we are that people, we are the people that God has promised to, to, to be in a relationship with, but we don't know anything about him. He's never revealed himself to us. He's never showed himself to us. All we know about spiritual worship is what we observe in the Egyptians and that this God had spoken to our ancestors. That's what they know. And they're getting to know God here in Exodus. God reveals himself to Moses very clearly in Exodus chapter 3. Moses comes into Egypt, and God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the one true God, matches up with all these lesser than gods in Egypt, and all the plagues happen. Remember this, this battle between the Egyptian gods and Yahweh, the one true God? They, this happens in Egypt. God ends up miraculously leading the Israelites out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, and now he's led them for three months through the wilderness, leading them in a, in a burning cloud of fire and smoke, providing for them manna from heaven, quail, water from a rock. This is their first introduction to God, this powerful God who's present, who's leading them. He's unlike the Egyptian gods. They've observed gods who, who, who abuse people, who use people, who, who are crooked and corrupt. And when they stack up against this Yahweh, this God that they're just learning about, they have no power. And so that's the, that's the cultural setting here of what's happening here in the Scripture. And so God comes, and in Exodus chapter 19, Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, the same mountain where God had spoken to Moses a few months earlier in a burning bush before he went back to Egypt and led the Israelites out. Moses is up on the mountain having this interaction, this encounter with God, and it's filled with power. Look at Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. So there's this powerful scene. There's this storm happening. Moses has had this interaction with God, and God begins to reveal the law to him, and he brings the Ten Commandments to the people, and he communicates the Ten Commandments to the people, and he starts by reminding them, Verse 2 of chapter 20. I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. Yahweh is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so he's just stating fact. Here's what happened. I led you out of that land where you were enslaved, out of that pagan nation where you observed all this worship of false gods, of lesser gods, of weak gods, of deceived gods. I'm the God who saves. I'm the God who sees you. I'm the God who speaks to you. I'm the God who saves you. I'm the God who leads you out. And I'm the God who builds a covenant of love with you. Then we get to the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. Now see, because God loves his people, he's just naming reality. Right? Loving relationships, they name reality. They don't keep things vague and undefined. Like if you're, if you're in a good working relationship, if you're either a boss and you have employees or if you're 
an employee of a boss, if it's a good working relationship, I bet there's some expectations there. There's some clear expectations or an understanding of how one another works and honoring of that. If you're in a good and healthy marriage, there's some understanding of the expectations and, and, and how it works. If you're in a good relationship with your parents or with your kids or with your roommate or with your friends or with your neighbors, there's some understanding of how life works. And so because God loves his people, he's just naming reality. He's saying, here's fact, here's how it is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, verse 2, and then verse 3, commandment number 1. You shall have no other gods before me. See, this is the foundation for all of life. If you're going to flourish in life, and if you're going to flourish in your relationship with God, you must know that there are no other gods before him. And you notice the word gods here. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. The Hebrew word for that word gods is Elohim. See, throughout Scripture, there is this, this spiritual being referred to as Elohim. It's one of the names for God, but it's also the names for spiritual beings. Oftentimes in the West, we think there's God, and then there's his creation, right? There's one supernatural higher power, and then there's natural life. Or maybe there's two supernatural powers. There's God and Satan and then us. Or maybe there's God and Satan and demons and us. Or maybe there's God and Satan and demons and angels and us. But oftentimes, so, so some of us probably believe that. Some of you grew up with different theologies of angels and demons. And, and, uh, but, but we often downplay the spiritual realm. See, what God is getting at here is, is he's communicating to a people who were well acquainted with the spiritual realm that there is something that exists outside of what we see. We, we've been steeped in enlightenment thinking and, and, the, and Western thinking where everything is science, everything is tangible, everything is testable. But for the majority of the world, people have believed that there is a different realm, the unseen realm, the spiritual realm. And that's what God is getting at here. He's saying, I am Yahweh, I am God, I am the creator of heaven and earth, and I'm the one who created the spiritual realm, the spiritual beings, and I'm the one who created you, mankind. And when you were in Egypt, you experienced some of the spiritual realm. You saw the Egyptians worshiping idols. You saw them worshiping false gods, or maybe not even false gods, lesser than gods, weak gods. See, the, the history of the Bible is that these spiritual beings, a handful of them rebelled against Yahweh, the one true God. God created them. They're lesser than him. He's the only one who has existed eternally. He created these spiritual beings to serve in this supernatural spiritual realm with him, and some of them rebelled against God. And when Israel was in Egypt, they saw the works of those gods, lowercase g. See, they really exist. Some of you know it. Some of you have probably had encounters with angels and demons. Some of us are, are so naturalized in our thinking that we don't consider the supernatural realm and the spiritual realm. But God is stating, in fact, he's saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Other gods exist. There's other spiritual beings, spiritual powers. Now, some of you will say, well, aren't Christians um, monotheists? We believe that there's one God. yes. We believe that there's one ultimate God, creator of heaven and earth, and these other gods are all lower than him, and they were created to be in service to him. 
That's what biblical monotheism is. If you'd like to learn more about this, the Bible Project has a great series on spiritual beings, which I would love to send you resources for. You could email me and I'll send you some more on that. But foundational among our loving relationship with God is to know that he's unlike any other. Like we sang this morning, only a holy God, only a creator God, only Yahweh, I am who I am. If I'm going to flourish in my spiritual relationship and if I'm going to flourish in my natural relationships, I need, to, I need to order my life properly and know that there is a God above all gods, above all created beings, above all things in heaven and on earth, and his name is Yahweh. And he expects my worship. He expects me to acknowledge him as Lord and creator of heaven and earth. See, idolatry, as we look at commandment one and two, have no other gods before me, and then you shall not make for yourself any carved image. See, in this context, idolatry was they, they had experiences with all these lesser than gods in Egypt, and then they, they would create carved images to try and contain that deity or to try and give an image of what that deity was like, and then they would worship that deity through the image. So it, it's not that it's not that a picture is wrong or a statue is wrong. It's that they would use that statue to try and worship this lesser than God. In fact, they would try and take God and make God into their own image. This is what we think God is like, or this God, the God of the sun. Let's, let's create a little sun statue and worship the God of the sun, or the God of the moon. Let's create a moon statue and worship the God of the moon, or, or whatever it is. And so they had these different images, these carved images that they would worship, which they thought connected them to one of the lesser gods. And so that's idolatry in this setting and context. But it's pretty far removed from most of us, right? I have a few friends who grew up with some Hindu and Buddhist uh, background, and, and they actually, I have a few friends whose parents grew up with some different idols, some different carved images in their homes that they would use as forms of worship. But for the majority of us in the West, we probably haven't grown up with a ton of carved images as idols that we use in our, in our worship. Some people will say, like a picture of Jesus on the wall at a church, is that? I, I don't think so. For one, if you have a picture of a Jesus on a wall in your church, try to stay away from the Scandinavian Jesus because he wasn't Scandinavian. He was a Jewish man with olive skin from the Middle East and North Africa, right, born in Bethlehem. So, that's a side note. You're welcome. Please get rid of your Swedish Jesuses. He is a Jesus for the Swedes, but he's not Swedish. He's Jewish. Amen. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, the point, though, is, is not to get caught into kind of the, the little minute details that sometimes Christians get caught up on. Like, oh, that church has a picture of St. Paul on their wall. Maybe it's just a picture of Paul, the apostle. It's, it's different if you're going to that picture and, and trying to utilize that picture or a rosary or something to try, and, to try and use it as a connection to God. That's the point here. God is saying there are no other gods before me and you can fashion nothing with your hands that will communicate to you what I am like. You can't contain me into an image. You can't create me in your image. In fact, it's reverse. You are created in my image. 
the closest picture that we have to who God is and what God is like is humanity. Scripture tells us that mankind is created in the image and likeness of God. And so to create an idol or a, or a, or a carved image is to try and usurp the image of God in mankind. And it's to say, well, we think God is like a golden calf. No, God is more like you and I than any elegant structure or craftsmanship. So God is saying there is one true God above all other gods. Don't worship false gods or lesser than gods and don't try and, don't try and create me into an image or, in, or a likeness that you think I am. The closest thing that you have is humanity. So if you want to see God, look at the goodness in humanity and, and there's evil, there's total depravity in humanity, but, but look at the goodness that you see. Any glimmer of hope, any glimmer of joy, any glimmer of truth, relational love, that's what I'm like. And so don't try and contain me. Back to the point of idolatry and carved images. We don't have many of them here and now today. And so we have to ask the question, what does idolatry really look like for us here in our context? What is it, what it, how does this commandment apply to have no other gods before God and to not make for ourselves any carved images? Because most of us, we would at least verbally assent and mentally assent to, yeah, there's, there's one true God. He's above all others. And I don't have idols carved images that I worship. So what does this mean for us? Well, I want to define idolatry as misplaced trust and misguided worship. Really, that, that's what it's getting down to as you drill into idolatry. It's misplaced trust and misguided worship. It can be worshiping false gods represented in carved images like it was for Israel, but often in our cultural context, it's more of when good things become ultimate things. It, it, it's, it's when God's good gifts become God to us. It, it's when we wrap our hands around things that God has given us and we think, I have to have this. If I lose this, I will die. If I lose this, I will suffer. If I, if I lose my comfort or my convenience or my joys or, or whatever it is that I hold dear, I, I, I can't do life like that. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller defines idols as Anything more important to you than God? So, while God says, you shall have no other gods before me, and for the most part in our cultural context, we think, well, yeah, I worship Zeus, and I worship Pelagius, and I worship all these different gods. We think, yeah, I know that. Okay, but what things have risen up in our heart as gods? Tim Keller says, anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and think, if I have that, then I feel my life has meaning. Then I feel significant or sincere or secure. He goes on to list about 20 diagnostics and things that in our cultural context we often elevate to God status. Things like money, sex, 
power. Anything wrong inherently with those things? No. Money can be a good gift from God, but can it become an ultimate thing that robs your joy? An idol. Sex. The Bible tells us it's a good gift from God. But can it become an ultimate thing that robs your joy? Power. There's nothing inherently wrong with power. God is powerful. He shows his power through burning bushes and through fire and clouds and through this booming authoritative voice. But power in the wrong hands and power without humility and power without love is devastating. Tim Keller lists things like control and comfort, convenience, convenience, approval, the need to be approved by others, or the, the, the incessant drive to always be achieving or succeeding. These are the type of idols in our culture where, where things have risen up in our hearts. One of the great reformers said that the, the, the human heart is an idol factory, always creating these things, these good gifts that God has given us and latching onto them and trying to suck more life out of them and think if only I had a better job, if only I had a little more money, if only my kids were a little bit more respectful and ordered, then my life would finally be calm. If only people would listen to me. I've got some really good ideas and people are spinning out of control and if only they would just do life the way that I do it, then things would make sense for them. Right? If only my, my spouse would change that habit or would order their life the way that I've been telling them to order their life for for years. If only we had a different president or the same president. If only people would realize that wearing masks is stupid. If only people would re realize that not wearing masks is stupid. Right? You see, you see how easy it is for us to start giving way to the idols of our heart? And then we treat people certain ways because we've actually risen up in our heart an idol, something other than God? God says, there are no other gods before me, whether that's a spiritual being in the unseen realm that you're worshiping or whether that's, that's a, a real physical carved image that you're worshiping or whether that's the phone that you spend hours on clicking on different apps. Could that be a carved image? It's getting your attention. It's, it's sucking your mind and your heart and your soul. And so God, because he loves us, he comes and he says, put nothing before me. If you want to flourish, keep first things first. Nobody other than me is worthy of worship and praise. I want to boil it down for three important things, I think, for us today that, that we get from this text in the form of questions. Who or what is your authority? Who or what do you trust? And who or what do you worship? See, what God is getting at here in Exodus chapter 20 is that he is the author of life, therefore he gets to be the authority on how life works best. 
I am Yahweh. I am that I am. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, who brought you out of Egypt. I am your creator. I am your maker. And because I am the author of life, I get to be the authority on life. And it's not just an ego trip. He's saying, I created life and I know how it works best. And, and so God here is claiming authority over his people. And I fear that many of us have grown up in a culture where authority is always looked down upon. And we are our highest authority. Or we and our people. Right? Me and the people who think like I do, we're the authority. And if only the people who think differently than we would listen to us, man, this whole chaotic world would be made so much better. Maybe politicians are your authority. Maybe there's a certain pastor who, 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 who you, you freeze up thinking, what would they say about this or that? The question for us this morning is to seek our hearts and to search our hearts and to really ask the question, who is my ultimate authority? Is it God? Is it, am, am I giving way to the law of the land or to the law of the Lord? Which voices do I listen to? Now, God has given us structures of authority in his word. This isn't an anti-authority thing, but it starts with him. He's foundation. He says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Who do you take your instructions from? That's the question. At the end of the day, is God your ultimate authority? That's what he's calling us to. If we're going to be in a covenant relationship with him, he's made a covenant with us. And if we trust and listen to other authorities, it doesn't break the covenant that he's made us, but it sure does send us into a tailspin of confusion, right? And so God is saying, because I love you, you need to know I am the Lord, your God. I am that I am. I'm your maker. Have no other gods before me. And then the second question, who or what do you trust? Now, it, it's good to have other people in your relationship that you can trust, in things in your relationship that you can trust. Like, there's, there's, I just, I trust on average when I go out in the morning and start up my car, it's going to work. Right? I, I, it feels really good to have a car that I can trust. But I can't put my ultimate trust there because I've walked out plenty of times and it hasn't started. Right? It's really good to have friendships, spouses who you can trust. But, don't give them your ultimate trust. How many people have been hurt by certain pastors or public figures that, they, that they've listened to and, and put some trust in and then it comes out that they're a fraud? How many, how many marriages have been hurt because you make that spouse your ultimate trust and you realize that they have their flaws, they have their failures, some, some small and manageable and I can deal with it and other ones deal breakers. It's good to have friendships that we can trust, but how many of you been hurt, have been hurt by, by friends who have let you down and they've proven themselves to be untrustworthy over the years? And, and so God's call here is that we ought to trust him and him alone. He is the basis of trust. Don't take the good trust that God has given you with a thing or a person and turn it into an ultimate trust that when it's broken, you're devastated. God loves you. He wants your allegiance. 
He wants to be your authority. He wants to be the one in whom you trust. And lastly, who or what do you worship? To worship means to bow the knee, to fall prostrate on your face and on your knee in adoration and exaltation of someone or something higher than you. We were all created as worshipers. This is why people who don't have a God to worship will spend their life chasing money or chasing sex or chasing career advancement or filling themselves on food and drink or going from one vacation to the next vacation always looking to be fulfilled because we're created to worship. We will all worship something. And God here is saying, I, I, I want to be the object of your worship and your affection because I'm the only one worthy of your worship and your affection. All other things will let you down. I've given you some good gifts. Just don't make them ultimate gifts. The moment you start to worship the security that you have in your bank account, the recession might hit. The moment that you start to worship your spouse, your marriage may unravel. The moment you start to think, I've got this figured out, something will be thrown into the gears and, and you'll be turned out of whack. And so God is saying, come to me. Who or what is your authority? Who or what do you trust? Who or what do you worship? I love how the prophet Isaiah says this. God speaks through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. He says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. See, because God, is love, because God loves us, he's telling us this is how life works. If you want to flourish in a loving relationship with me, keep me first. There's no one like me. Worship me. Let me be your authority. Trust me, and things will work out. But you and I, we're like Israel, aren't we? If you actually take those three questions this week and spend time reflecting on them, who or what is my authority? Who or what do I trust? Who or what do I worship? you're going to find that there's things competing for that answer with God. You'll probably be able to say, yeah, yeah, God, 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 but you're also going to say, but in these moments, this person or this philosophy or this theology or in this moment, this or that or this or that because we, like Israel, fail. We struggle to keep God's commands. We can't fulfill his law. And so church family, God has come through on his promise. When he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols, he fulfilled that for us through Jesus who lived the perfect life, died the sacrificial death, the one whom God gave all glory and upheld the law. Flip with me as we close out this morning to Isaiah chapter 42. And as we close out this morning, I'm just going to read this passage and then the worship team is going to come back up and they're going to play a song. And, and I want you to just sit and listen to the song and think about the different idols that you may have in your life and your heart. 
And then take communion when you're ready, remembering that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The cracker represents his body broken for you. The blood represents, the, the cup represents his blood shed for you. And as you take it, consider the words of the song that we sing and consider the words from Isaiah 42 here, a prophecy about the coming Christ. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. He says, Behold my servant, speaking on behalf of God. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, the God who created the heavens and outstretched them, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. He gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I am now declaring. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. That's a prophecy of Jesus, that he will come, he will establish for us, in us, through us, what we couldn't do on our own. Amen?